Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in in what part of the country? Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn, and we've got a great show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be featuring an interview with Lynn Novak, who, together with Ken Burns and Sarah Botstein, have produced a documentary which will be appearing this week on PBS called The U.S. and the Holocaust. And uh, that's a pretty amazing thing in and of itself. And the second half hour, we'll be featuring some insights into the portion of Kisava, which can be found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26 and following. The uh, Jewish music, new new stuff. We got we have a real old piece, which was a request by somebody. They wanted a really old piece, and I managed to track it down. We have an awesome Hasidic story at the end. And before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. A Palestinian tried to attack an IDF soldier with a hammer near Ramallah and was shot and killed. IDF soldiers caught an Arab on his way to a terror attack in Tel Aviv. Five Arabs who attacked a Jewish man in Akko in 2021 were, wet, were arrested near Shechem. A riot broke out and crowd control methods were used to disperse the crowd. Seven IDF soldiers were injured in a drive-by shooting on their bus in the Jordan Valley. The attackers were caught when their car caught on fire. Hamas executed five people in Gaza, two of which were accused for spying, the other three for, for murder. A, in other news, a papyrus from the first temple time was returned to Israel after more than 60 years. The document found near the Dead Sea was purchased by a tourist from Wyoming in 1965. The scroll became known to the Israeli Antiquities Commission, who in turn lobbied the grandchildren of the owner to return the document to Israel. And it's now on display at the Antiquities uh, Museum. And finally, this is one of those stories. You have to, this has to be like every news story should end with something like this. Police in central Israel stopped a vehicle that was swerving all over the road, expecting a DUI. When they opened the back of the vehicle, they found 11 sheep. The, doc, the driver was charged with careless driving and endangering livestock. 
And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online special privilege. We have Lynn Novick, who is the co-director and producer of the new documentary by Ken Burns, U.S. and the Holocaust. And we want to welcome you to the Jewish Hour. Thank you so much for coming on, Lynn. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, so I've been looking around and uh, seeing previous interviews. Ken Burns, okay. who has done a zillion documentaries. I remember listening in my radio as I was tooling around at night to jazz way uh-huh. back when. So he's done yeah. a zillion. he said that the U.S. and the Holocaust was probably his most monumental documentary to date. Mm-hmm. That's that says a lot, considering all the different topics that he's done. So, what right. what, what makes it so monumental then? Yeah, well, I'll just say first of all, it's been my privilege to work with Ken on many of the projects you mentioned. We've been collaborating together since 1989, and you know, I I I, I understand why. He would say that and why we feel collectively, myself, Ken Burns, and our, our third director on the project is Sarah Botstein, who's been working with us for many years. This project um, about telling the story of the United States' response to the Holocaust feels extraordinarily important to us, given what's happening in our world right now, what we're living through in terms of the fragility of our democracy, the um, mainstreaming of horrendous sort of uh, hate speech and bigotry, racism, and anti-Semitism, and the sense that, you know, the things we take for granted, our democratic society, are really at risk right now. And in telling the story of America's response to the rise of Hitler and the catastrophic plans that he put into action, have enormous resonance for us today. That's pretty fascinating. Okay, so you're Jewish. Your other co-producer is Jewish. Ken Burns is not Jewish, and yet he felt, right. and yet he felt this way. I don't think that. Uh, I mean, how can I say this correctly? You don't have to be Jewish to be worried about what's happening in our world, or to see the relevance of the story of America's response to the Holocaust as something that we all need to pay attention to. Certainly, as Jewish Americans, myself and Sarah Botstein have our own particular relationship to the story that we're telling, but it's by no means only for people who are Jewish. This is a story everybody needs to know. Okay. So 
Tell us about it. How did the, the, the uh, give us the framework, the development, where was the initial germinating seed? You know, we should do a documentary yeah. of the U.S. and the Holocaust. Where did that come from, Lynn? Yeah, so a number of years ago, in 2015, we were approached by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. They were anticipating their 25th anniversary in 2018, and they were planning an initiative called Americans and the Holocaust, which would culminate in an exhibition exploring that topic. But also there was a lot of other dimensions to this initiative. And they said, would we be interested in collaborating with them on a documentary that would explore some of the same themes and questions they were looking at in their initiative? And for myself, I will say that it was an immediate yes. This is a subject I've long been interested in. And we had explored, Ken, Sarah, and I, in our film on the Second World War called The War, you know, the, the American story of the Second World War and what the, the Holocaust was part of that, but it was certainly not the focus. Ken Burns had made a series with other partners about the Roosevelt dynasty. And again, some of the questions that we explore in this film were addressed. But this was an opportunity to look very squarely at some pretty fundamental questions about American identity, our attitude towards immigrants and refugees, our nativist and sort of xenophobic tendencies and in, in uh, tension with pluralism and diversity and, you know, really raising fundamental questions about who are we as a nation? What is our obligation to the rest of the world? Are we a nation of immigrants? Are we a place of refuge or not? And if the answer is not, why not? Okay, so now... So you have an idea. Just um, forgive my ignorance in this thing. So uh, given that the name Ken Burns is Ken Burns, mm -hmm. going to – you need to have a, a PBS test to say, okay, yeah, we'll do it. Is, is there, his relationship with PBS such that he says, I have an idea, and everybody jumps up and down and says, yes, we're going to do that? Or does it really go through the scrutiny of PBS still? You know, I'm not really sure how to answer that Um Ken Burns and myself and many of our colleagues have been producing documentaries for public television for nearly four decades. And so uh, in my experience, the system has been welcoming of almost, I think, every topic that we've wanted to explore. So we, you know, we decide what films we want to make and we partner with PBS to put them on the air, if that answers your question. So, you know, we have the final say uh, of the content and um, the choice of subject matter, frankly. But I will say that PBS, um, our partner in this project, has been extremely supportive, as they are in all of our films. You know, that's nothing new, but they understand also the importance of the story and why it needs to be told right now. Okay, indeed. Our guest today is Lynn Novak. She's the producer and co-director of The U.S. and the Holocaust, a documentary by Ken Burns, which will be aired this week on your local PBS station starting yeah, and Tuesday. Just, just, just to correct you, it's actually a documentary by Ken Burns, myself, and Sarah Bobstein. Okay. Well, so the three of us are actually the, the directors of the film, and it's by all of us. So we all kind of take responsibility for okay. you know what it says and how we say it. Wonderful. Okay. We will take note. Okay. So tell us how then... Um, did you go about, like, I'm just, the, the first thing that, that came to mind when I saw that this was going to be happening, mm -hmm. I remember as about a 
10 or a 12 year old growing up in Newark and asking my mother and all the old people in my neighborhood were either uh, they're all they're all immigrants in some degree and there were a lot of Holocaust survivors and asking my mm-hmm. mother what what were you doing during the war? You were like in college mm-hmm. and you were doing things and, and like Jewish people knew and what was going on? She said, we just didn't know. That, yeah. that was her I answer. I heard that too. I've heard that too. Okay. Yeah. So how did you go about formulating? You have to like, like write an outline of what you're going to do. What Describe the process then, Lynn, about the, the developing of the outline for this story of the Holocaust. Yes. Well, you know, thank you for, for telling that story because it's very instructive. You know, we, one of the central, there were several questions that we wanted to explore why we wanted to make this film. And one of the critical ones was, what did the American people know about what was happening in Europe as the catastrophe unfolded? And different people, you know, that would mean the the president and the White House, uh, the State Department, the press, ordinary people, people within the Jewish community, you know, who knew what when and how did people get the information? And then the subsequent question is, and with that information, what was done or what was not done? And then the third question is why? And so that's actually what we were trying to explore in this film. And I agree. I had the, I had the same impression that you heard from your parents, which was that people just didn't know too much about this while it was happening. And that's one of the uh, questions that the Holocaust Museum also explored in their exhibition and their initiative. And, you know, they discovered that actually the American people had access to an enormous amount of information about what Hitler was doing, about his intentions, about what he said, about violence and persecution, concentration camps, and ultimately mass killing. And it wasn't in real time the way to get information today with the Internet. But still, there were articles in newspapers, there were photographs, not too many, but there were some. There were newsreels. You know, it wasn't instantaneous news, but um, there was a lot of information. Now, whether that information was heated or believed or understood and the scope and scale and dimension of the horrendous depravity could not perhaps be fully understood as it was happening. So that's also true. And we explore in the film differences between knowing and understanding and believing. And particularly, we were uh, greatly inspired by the work of Deborah Lipstadt, a brilliant scholar of this whole period, who's now the United States ambassador to combat anti-Semitism. And she wrote a book a number of years ago called Beyond Belief, in which she tries to unpack sort of what people knew or what you could find out by reading the newspaper but then did that translate into truly understanding what was happening? And I think that's partly why um, our parents' generation, and my parents too, they were a bit younger than your parents, but growing up in the 30s and 40s, they also have told me they didn't know much about it, which is very interesting when we look back. So in any case, that was the one big theme that we were interested in exploring. And another theme was finding testimony of people who lived through this period. And so, you know, given that this is now quite a long time ago, we interviewed people in their 80s and 90s who were children during the 30s and 40s, because that's as far back as we can get, to tell us what was it like to come of age at this time um, in 
Germany or other parts of Nazi-occupied Europe and have family members in the U.S. and trying to get to America because we're always trying to see this through an American lens. And we also talk to people in the United States who have relatives who are trapped in Europe trying to get out. And one of the stories that we decided to frame the film with is the story of Anne Frank, which might be surprising to many of your listeners because at least for myself, I would say, you know, what would the story of Anne Frank have to do with the United States and the Holocaust? But we found out in the course of our research, some documents came to light while we were working on the film that showed Otto Frank reaching out to people in the U.S. that he knew to try to get paperwork visas to come to the United States. And he did this on multiple occasions in different ways. And so the fact that Anne Frank's family tried to get to America says a lot about the American response to the Holocaust. Okay, understood. Okay, so in 1924, the gates to the Golden Medina slammed shut. My Bubby, Indeed. Had, my, my Bubby made it in 1919 following the war, but her mm-hmm. sister and brother wound up in Cuba and Argentina because they didn't apply until afterwards, and they, uh, I have a machutna, wound up in Curacao. So these people, right. these people, it was shut. So was it plain xenophobia or was it anti-Semitism or both or what was it then? That's a great question and thank you for asking it because in our story we go back even before 1924 to sort of unpack the question of, you know, America for a long period of time had open doors, open borders. That's when my ancestors came here in the late 19th and early 20th century and waves upon waves of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe, including millions of Jews and Italians and um, people who were seen by the white Protestant establishment in America, the more, uh, the greater their numbers became, the more the backlash intensified. So there was just a general growing sense among the people who were in charge of this country that something bad was happening, that our... Uh, racial purity, as they saw it, as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation, was being degraded and degenerated by immigrants. And this language that they used was horrifically racist, anti-Semitic, anti-a lot of things. And they had a basis for it that they thought was pure science called eugenics, which has been completely discredited. But there was a a whole kind of um, ideology around, you know, who... Uh, who's a quote-unquote real American. And the immigrants that came here in waves from Eastern and Southern Europe were not seen by the people who really ran this country as being legitimately uh, worthy of being here. And so it's a combination of things. Anti-Semitism, for sure, is a a very important driving force, but that's not the only one. And this anti-immigrant xenophobia became so um, strong that in 1924, as you said, uh, Congress overwhelmingly passed a law to restrict immigration dramatically. And they were really trying to sort of re-engineer the ethnic makeup of society to go back to a time before these waves of immigrants had come. And that's what they were hoping to do. Very interesting. Fascinating. Our guest again today is... Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to recommend um, a wonderful book about this topic 
um, called The Guarded Gate by Daniel O'Krent. Uh, he really also inspired us to make this film. He really explores eugenics, anti-immigrant sentiment, and all the prejudices and bigotry of that and how that fed into the Johnson Reid Act of 1924, which had tragic repercussions as soon as the um, persecution of the Jews began. And, you know, it was impossible practically to get into the United States as a result. Okay. All right. Thank you. Our guest today is Lynn Novak. She is the producer and co-director of The U.S. and the Holocaust, a new doc documentary by Ken Burns, Lynn Novak, and Sarah Botstein. Okay, so in an analysis, let's do let's make it globally speaking. Okay, so the United States is not letting in lots of immigrants. FDR, I, I mm -hmm. hear it now from from Republicans that are that are. Uh, uh, spewing the trope, I guess we would say it, about how could you vote for Democrat, even going back to FDR, he was an anti-Semite, and it's always been, and the, the, the Democratic Party is always anti-Semitic. I don't talk politics, that's not my thing. Uh -huh. but, okay. but, but, okay, let's look, at, let's look at some numbers. During that time period when we were criticizing that, that the United States had closed its doors and whatnot, 200,000 Jewish immigrants were allowed into the United States. Right. The most of any country around the world. Right. So that does right. say, so, so let's talk about maybe FDR policy a little bit. Was it, was it not? He did yeah. have Jewish advisors. He did, yeah, what's going on? Yes. Well, first of all, I just, I, I you know, I want to say that um, it's, we think it's too easy to kind of pin everything on FDR. Whatever was going on, he's not the only person responsible. So I think we have to have a more expansive notion of uh, responsibility for the decisions that are made and the policies that are enacted. So his hands are somewhat tied by this Johnson Reed Act in terms of this quota system that was put in place where you have tiny quotas from uh, parts of Europe where people are now desperate to get out. And the fact is that we did admit more refugees than any other sovereign nation, that you know, we can pat ourselves on the back for that to some degree. But it's also true that our even the quotas that we had were not filled. So we could have, even following the strict letter of our own laws, admitted many more people. But what happened is that the State Department, with I guess the tacit, you know, okay from the White House, I'm not sure that was ever, you know, papered over or anything, sort of went out of their way to make it harder to get here than it needed to be with uh, there's something called a public charge law where you have to prove that you wouldn't be a dependent on, you know, the state if you came here. Um, there were many other restrictions that were put on, you know, they, they could have made it easier or harder given the, the, the way the laws were written. And for the most part, our State Department was committed to limiting the flow of refugees into this country for a variety of reasons. And that's, we can't pin that on President Roosevelt per se. And then one of the, one of the questions that we asked in the film and one of the really revelatory uh, stories that we tell is about American public opinion. You know, the American public, as I said earlier, did have understanding and awareness of what was happening in Europe to the Jews. And um, that did not translate into wanting to open our doors. So no matter what the news was, Chris Dahl knocked uh, various reports um, of persecution, even of mass killings, when the, the public was polled, should we open our doors? Should we let in refugees? The answer was always no. And even after 
the war was over and the camps had been liberated and the horrific images had been disseminated and the true dimensions of the Nazi crimes were known, that polling did not change for the most part. It went up a little bit, but mostly the American public resolutely said, no, we don't want to let in any more refugees. And by refugees, frankly, I think, you know, they understood that that would mean Jewish refugees. Mm-hmm. Have, have things changed? I mean, there are situations where there are people that are refugees, Syria, Afghanistan, Haiti, yeah. over the course. And the United States is still kind of, you know, uh, wishy-washy on letting immigrants mm. and refugees into the country. Is this, is this, is this, <laughs> yeah. par- are we, are, have we grown? Are we power- We just got better at doing what we did in 1924, Lynn? Well, that's a complicated picture, you know, and I think one thing that we have understood from this time, that time period to now is that back then, during the lead-up to World War II and during World War II, there was just basically a policy of immigration. You know, how many immigrants could come from which place? There was no special provision for refugees. The idea of a refugee, someone seeking asylum, is that they're in you know, imminent peril and that we could let them have a safe haven here and potentially they could go back home when the conflict is over. Or not, but it's you know it's a different status than a refugee than an immigrant, and there was no distinction made during during the Nazi period for refugees. So immigrants and refugees were kind of lumped together in our public policy, and subsequently we have slowly evolved a policy. There's both you know immigration laws, and there's also refugees sort of provisions, and in different ways and at different times we do seem to be more welcoming to certain refugees and not to others. And sometimes it's a function of where they're coming from, their ethnic background, their religious background, why they're, you know, what happened to create the crisis. And so we're not really consistent, I would say. And sometimes we're more uh, generous than others. I have relatives who came here from the Soviet Union as refugees. So they were fleeing communism and anti-Semitism in the late 1980s. And, you know, they came here and had um, opportunities and, you know, support from the government because they had been oppressed uh, living under communism. Then many other people listening to this will probably have no stories of people who weren't admitted coming from different kinds of conflict. So I think we're a mixed bag. I think we have some aspirations and we live up to them sometimes and we could do a lot better. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got time for like one more question, and you can add whatever okay. you want after that. And that is, um, so <clears throat> there's been lots of parallels between a previous presidential uh, administration mm. and what was going on in Germany during that time, even at the point where the uh, expression, make America great, may be paralleled after an expression that was used then, make Germany great. Now, you had initially mm-hmm. had this in the documentary, but took it out. Why? Oh, well, I think we, you know, um, the language isn't exactly right. And so we wanted to make sure that we were completely historically accurate. And so I can't remember the exact translation of what Hitler would say and what our former president said, but. Suffice to say that, you know, the racist, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant ideologies of the Nazis are with us to this day. And they sometimes have different, um, you know, words get changed around. Uh, but the, the, uh, the intent 
is maybe not so different. You know, I think for us, we don't make explicit parallels. We let the audience draw the connections for themselves. Someone or see a, a government that, you know, um, little by little takes away the rest of its citizens and destroys the rule of law and rules by fear and intimidation and other, you know, treats, creates, uses fear mongering and scapegoating to uh, dehumanize a segment of the population and basically say that they are not worthy of citizenship first and then even of life at the end, you know, and that a democracy is um, in name only. These are uh, trends and themes that we're seeing with us right now. And, you know, we hope audiences watching this film will think about our own democracy, how it works, and how we shouldn't take it for granted. Okay, I'm glad. Thank you very much for that clarification. Our guest today has been Lynn Novak, who, together with Ken Burns and Sarah Botstein, have uh, produced and directed the U.S. and the Holocaust, which will be airing this week on your local PBS station. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 8 p.m. locally. We want to thank you so much for all the work that you've uh, done till now and continued success from now, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. It was been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure's been ours. That's going to do it. We're going to take okay. a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's a symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. New Year approaching, why go anywhere else for your holiday shopping when you can go to the Grove? Fully renovated, the Grove is located on Greenfield Road, just south of 696. At the Grove, you'll find the largest selection of kosher foods and wines in Michigan. Looking for fresh, round holiday challahs, honey cake, or exotic fruit for the New Year? The Grove has it. The Grove has the freshest produce, gourmet dairy, deli, and meats. They even have a kosher bakery and hot takeout right on the premises. It's The Grove on Greenfield Road in 696 for all your shopping needs. Hey, Shulfenman, here you're listening to The Jewish Hour. We want to welcome our seasonal sponsor, The Grove, the kosher market located in the heart of Southfield Oak Park, right on the corner of 696 and Greenfield Road. Yes, do all your shopping there. Formerly one stop. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention, talking about Detroit and America and the the, the, the Holocaust, of course, we were, <laughs> we were home to Henry Ford and the uh, Daily Independent with all the diatribes that came through there and the propaganda and also the propaganda <laughs> extraordinaire coming from the Shrine of the Little Flower and Father Coughlin, his name should be obliterated. But uh, yeah, Detroit was one of those places. And growing up in Newark, 
So I knew that Irvington was a place that you just didn't express your Jewishness because that was, as my mother referred to it, as a Bund town. It was like there were Nazis living there before the war. There was like they were getting together in the beer halls and they were just like singing those songs. It was like this this was scary stuff. But we grow on. We go on. And speaking of going on, up for your listening pleasure. This is what we got next. Uh, Avram Fried and Yishai Reboy playing, singing, Tafach Yipateach. Open, you shall surely open. We're talking about before Rosh Hashanah, getting ready. Please, God, open up.
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. It's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulfinman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, this one is actually a request. Person who didn't want to be, he said he, they like, like we were talking and he mentioned a couple of names and uh, there's a person with whom I learn um, over the phone actually. And the name came up and she said, well, why don't you play that on your show? He listens to the show. And so this, the, <laughs> the group is called the Irving Fields Trio. The song is called Atalisal, which means a little prayer shawl.
Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. And here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have time for one more song. This is Aviv Geffen and Avram Fried. This is the one that's collaborated. Avram Fried was not on the first song. My mistake, I apologize. Now, what's the deal over here? The song is called Betsoros, which means the, our pains and how we managed to overcome them. So the deal is over here. This is something very interesting that happened. Aviv Geffen has been an outspoken opponent against the settler movement in Israel for since the eighties. And he has become a he was a he's a Israeli rock star. He's like the real deal. So Avram Fried was over there and everybody knows about Avram Fried and Avram Fried happens to be a Lubavitcher and follows the uh, the policies that were set down by the Lubavitcher Rebbe about how the settling policy was actually a good thing. So Avram Fried actually became friends with Aviv and uh, the two of them hit it off and Avram Fried and uh, Aviv Geffen has uh, toned down the rhetoric a lot. So it's interesting. So here's a collaboration. The song is called Bitsaros. <laughs> Shalva, 
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. The portion of the week is the portion of Vakisavo can be found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 26 and following. There's a whole lot of stuff. There's some mitzvahs at the beginning, a lot of philosophy through the middle and towards the end. The very last section, chapter 29, 1 through 10, I believe it is. Moses says, okay, guys, you got it. We're almost done. The book is pretty much done at this point. Okay, we have Nitzam Vayelech, Hazino and Zosabracha. That's it. That's all. It's, that's all that's left. And those are just sort of like the wrap up. Okay, we're we're done for the most part with the Book of Deuteronomy. So um, Moses says, "Now, now, you guys know, you have eyes to see and a heart that understands. And what is it that you understand? What is it that you see? Forty years ago." There was all these miracles that happened in the desert. Excuse me, that happened in Egypt. And did you collectively appreciate them when they were going on? No. There's an expression in the Talmud, Ein Bal Hanes Makir Es Nisai. The person who is the beneficiary of a miracle doesn't appreciate that it's a miracle until after it's done. When they're in it, it's like, well. <laughs> so you didn't appreciate it. And then the whole the time, we remember uh, in this week's portion, it says, remember, uh, actually, it's the last week's portion. Remember, remember that we got what happened with Miriam and remember how we got Hashem angry. And uh, thank you very much. So there was always the shortcoming. So at this point, Moses is, is charging the troops, you might say. Just remember, if you'll be on the up and up, you'll keep the com- you'll keep the commandments. You'll keep the covenant. And God will take care. 
much of the covenant revolves around, of course, the adherence to the 613 commandments, which the Jews didn't exactly do, if you look biblically, especially in the second, the book of Kings too. It's like, who? Yeah. Just the, every time I read it, I'm thinking to myself, whose ancestors are these? Don't Doesn't sound like mine or anybody I'd like to identify with. Thank you, all the stuff that was going on. So indeed, and then what happens at the end of Kings 2? We're on the outside looking in. And it didn't take very long. It only took like 800 years. And bada bing. And then look at us now. We're 2,000 years since the Jews were kicked out of Israel. And we'd have to say that it wasn't just the Romans that kicked us out. Because there have been opportunities for Jews to go back in mass. Jews are back in mass now. There are more Jews living in Israel than any other single country. And it's pretty close that there's more Jews living in Israel than any place in the world combined. Almost, almost. Yet, there's no temple. There's no Mashiach. The world's not ready for it yet. Israel's not ready for it yet. Because the main thing that we have to focus on is the very last verse of this week's portion, which is, you keep the bris, you keep the covenant, and Hashem will keep you. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. We have an awesome Hasidic story. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep The Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to The Jewish Hour 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. First of all, we would like to extend our condolences to the Specs Howard family, Jerry Liebman who passed away this last week at the age of 96. Um, a man who was like, he was a rock star for all intents and purposes, just saying it. And uh, it was an honor for me to know him and have been part of his, his circle of, uh, of people. And uh, he will be truly missed. If you'd like to get in touch with me, RabbiFinman.com is the place to do it, right on the homepage. And we have there all other types of things at RabbiFinman.com. You can check it out. If you're listening to the radio, the show at RabbiFinman.com, well, that's cool because we've got lots of archived editions of the show going way back. We also have the very important donations page, and I'm going to keep it brief because Baruch Hashem, we, we paid July, we paid August. We now just need to pay September. So you guys came through big time this week. And uh, if you would do it just a little bit more this week, I wouldn't be even asking for a pledge. But we're asking still. We have to pay off September. So please uh, go to RabbiFinman.com, make a donation, make it whatever it happens to be before Rosh Hashanah because, after all, this is a charitable organization. It's not just the Jewish Hour. There's other things. There's the Eparsha. There's the uh, chaplaincy program. There's the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. There's Jewish Ferndale. All under the umbrella organization. 
which is this uh, this organization which has been around for uh, since 2003 now. So, uh, but <laughs> we need your help. And you've gotten this far, you're 50 minutes in, and you're listening. So give a donation, even if it's $5. $5 is good. If everybody listening gave $5, then I wouldn't have to ever do this pledge. So do $5. You want to do 10 do 100 do do 1000 It's all good. All the numbers are good. Whatever number you happen to give is good. And I acknowledge, of course, every donation. Don't like internet giving, understood? You could send your donation to... The Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. The story involves the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. He was known as a miracle worker when it came to finding lost husbands. There's a thing called an aguna where a guy decides, I don't want to be married anymore, takes off. His wife is left high and dry. She's not allowed to get married because she's married already. She can't be married to two husbands. So, and technically speaking, he can't be married to two wives either. So he's kind of high and dry himself, but for the most part, they didn't really care if they're going to do that to their family and kids. So the, um, they didn't know what to do. They're looking. They have no idea where he went. So someone told them, oh, you know, that some ascetic, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, he does miracles when it comes to finding people's husbands. So they travel. The uh, the widow, not the widow, the, 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 uh, the, the abandoned woman and her child and her brother. And they travel because the ascetic did not see women alone in private audience. There had to be a man there. So the brother went with. And they went in and they told the problem. And the, the Tzemach Tzedek just looked at them and said, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I can't help you. So rather than argue and say, yes, you can, you've done it before. So the brother said, listen, I want to go to Israel. Should my sister come with me? And do we have your blessing? And so he said, it's a good idea. And maybe you'll find your husband in one of the villages along the way. Okay, good. So they set off. They packed up, packed their stuff. They got the blessing to go to Israel. And this woman is like, how am I going to find my husband? Just some random village. The Rebbe said. They're going to go depart through Odessa, which was uh, on the map now with what's going on. Odessa is a uh, warm water port on the Black Sea. And you can you can hop on a boat from Odessa straight to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul, I don't know if you have to change boats or not, but you have to go through the uh, straits over there, which has a really cool name, which my wife knows like inside out, but I forgot. And you get on a boat on the other side of the straits, and you get you pick up about the Mediterranean, and then you take the boat from Istanbul to Haifa, and you land in Israel, and you live happily ever after, right? So that was their plan. When they they traveled from city to city to city, and everywhere they put out, do you know this woman's husband? No, we don't know anything about it. Okay, they're on their way to Odessa, and the brother says, you know, in Odessa, they're really strict about passports. You have a passport. I have a passport, but your son doesn't have a passport. They're not going to let him out. They're not going to let him on a boat. So she says, what should we do? So if he says, uh, we'll have to travel through, through Yassi, which is a, I suppose it's a port city. I'm not sure, but it's in Romania. 
And so they they turned around and they started to stop going towards Odessa, which is in Ukraine. They went through Yassi, which is in Romania. And they're stopping in village, 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 village. They were plowing on. They wanted to get to a uh, a, uh, a certain inn that, that they had heard about. That's where people slept at night and these things. And uh, it was dark. And they bumped into a wagon. And the wagon driver just started cursing at them, vile curses. And uh, they just said, let's get out of here. And they went up to the inn. A little while later, they got to the end, they got settled, they got a supper out of the deal. The door bursts open. And in comes this man, hurling curses. Who bumped into me? I have to see who this person is. And the woman stands up and says, it's my husband. And she said, you want to get, right? And she said, yeah, you want to get divorced? He says, yeah, the next town over, there's a rabbi. We'll go get to the divorce. And they popped into the two wagons. They went to the next town. They got the divorce. Nothing hit, but it comes back. They came back and they said, he gave us the the divorce. The innkeeper was, that guy? He's he's like worse than any non-Jew. He's like a peasant, that guy. Why would he agree to give a get to his wife? So the next morning, the guy comes in. This, he was a male driver. And he sits down and he says to the to the innkeeper, give me a big glass of beer. Big. So he takes the biggest glass he's got, puts it down. He says, and he sits down. His wife is sitting, ex-wife is sitting on the other table. And he says, I bet you want to know why it is that me, this peasant of a male driver, should suddenly be so nice to my wife. He says, yeah. He says, you know, there's a ruin down the street. She says, yeah, everybody avoids it. It's haunted. It's filled with demons. He says, I don't believe in demons. I don't believe. I go past it a hundred times every week. No problem. He says, last night I'm driving by it, and I couldn't get any further. I just felt terror. And as soon as I thought about going further, I felt even more terror. And then somebody bumped into me, and the, I cursed at them, and the terror stopped. And I realized it must have been the demons. So I had to see who it was when I saw that it was my wife. And I realized that the demons were holding me to uh, to give my wife a divorce. As the saying goes, whatever works. So he went on his way. She and her brother and her son went to Israel. They established a, uh, became part of the Hasidic uh, community in Hebron. And uh, let's hope they live happily ever after. That's going to do it. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. No.